Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where's where we're going to start. We picked up, this is where we started last week, and we'll be uh, come back to here even next week. But Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we talked about last week, that therefore is loaded. And it's it means that Paul, again, we said this last week, he's not calling us to create or to achieve some unity that we don't already have, but to pursue and to preserve the unity that's already been graciously given to us uh, in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 1-3 to is all about. Particularly chapter 2, you see this unity, this reconciliation that's been made through Christ's work. And so because of who God is, what He's done, who He's made us to be, believers of all sorts have been brought together into one body, united to Jesus Christ, and therefore united to one another. And so Paul then, as we saw last week in particular, verse 4, he grounds our unity not only in the saving work of Christ, but in the very nature of the Godhead, in the person of our triune God. And so there is one body, verse 4, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so last week we said we are, we are presently one because the triune God has made us one. That was, that was our focus last week. He's given to us by His grace this unbreakable oneness and unity. It's, it's the reality. And so then in verse 7 and following, he does something interesting, which is where we're going to turn our attention today. He starts talking about differences, distinctions, uh, diversity that exists in the body of Christ. But, but what he's going to show is these, these differences, they don't disrupt that unity. They actually serve and strengthen our oneness. They, they, we have this wide diversity of gifts and measures of gifts that God gives to His people. And in our diversity, unity is actually served. And so you see, in verse 7, he begins to make this case. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure, the different measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us has been made recipients of these gracious gifts from Christ. And then in verse 8, it's almost like there's this aside in verses 8-10. through 10. So he says something in verse 7, he, he, and, and it just brings to mind how costly these gifts are that Jesus has given to His church. And so he goes to Psalm 68 that we read at the beginning of the service. He's going there to find the words, to find the image that that can give expression to this. And so he says, therefore it says, verse 8, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. So Paul's saying like that triumphant parade of God that David is writing about in Psalm 68 and and, 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 and of the king, that, that he's going up to the city with all of these spoils of war and procession with him. And, and that, that's the image that he goes to. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But then he stops in verse 9, and it's almost like a, an aside within the aside. He, he, he elaborates on Christ's ascension. What does it mean that Jesus ascended? The way Jesus obtained this victory, this ascension, this enthronement, is through the valley of humiliation. So he says, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We'll again unpack that a little more. But the purpose of Christ's humiliation and his ascension is the completion, the fulfillment of God's eternal purposes. Part of this glorious restoration of all things that's coming. And then in verse 11, it's, it's like Paul says, now where was I? You know, So you could read verse 7 to, and right into verse 11 and, and not, you, you would think you wouldn't miss anything. But again, this side that's inspired by the Lord and it's beautiful and we'll talk more about that. But he, he just couldn't stop but say how costly these gifts are that the, that the Lord has given to His church. But now he comes back to the gifts in verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now we know if you've studied the Bible for any length of time in a part of church, you probably realize there are other gifts beyond those four. And, and in particular, there's other listings of gifts that talk more about these abilities that, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit for the church. And so all these different types of gifts. But here the focus is on, on differently gifted people. That, that the, the total person is a gift to the church. And so, but all these gifts are given for a purpose, for the building up of the entire body, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So last week, again, we are, we are one because the triune God has made us one. Today we're saying we are, we are one and Christ graciously gives us these different gifts to support our oneness, our harmony. And so today, I just there's going to be three words and one image. Three words and one image. And so let me start with the image. And the image is that of a parade. And we'll see this in the text in just a minute. But I'm just going to ask a question. I think we're a smaller group today. So what, what is, what's a, the favorite parade you've watched? And I mean live, like in person. Um, did anybody go to the dog championship parade yesterday? Let me ask that. Okay, nobody braved that adventure. Okay. Uh, or the Braves victory parade. Anybody do that? All right, we got one. Yeah, you better have. It was part of your job probably, wasn't it? Uh, anybody else? Anybody been to the New York, uh, the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day parade? Okay. You guys don't get around much either. I haven't either. I'm, I'm like, I'm... I'm just hope I'm trying to live vicariously through you and your ventures. Or the Rose Bowl parade. Anybody from California? Okay, some of y'all have lived out there and been to that. Um, uh, military parades, some some kind of military parade. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, maybe you just had local hometown, you know, like the Asparagus Festival parade or something like that. You've had small parades in your towns. I mean, we have the MLK Day parade. I've been. Many of you have been to that uh, different years. Um, I've seen you there. How many of you have been in a parade of some kind, like riding a float, passing out candy, playing the playing an instrument, something like that? Okay, I'll, don't be embarrassed. It's fine. It's good. Um, uh, maybe you were homecoming king or queen in your homecoming parade, something like that, or you were the court jester or something like that. Uh, I remember being, I was in a Dickens Christmas parade. My mom had a little antique shop in little downtown Plano, uh, Texas, a little suburb of Dallas, and I had to dress up. She got me to dress up in, you know, uh, apparel to 
to that Dickens era, and I got and I enjoyed it. I thought throwing kid throwing candy at kids was far more fun than actually we're getting the candy, and so that was that was a treat. But well, here's the thing about the passage we're looking at today: we are we are all in this parade that Paul's describing, and he and he's doing this incredible thing with this image of the parade. He what starts as this parade of shame. Through the gospel, it becomes a parade of grace. Now, we'll unpack that image. So hold on to that image, this parade of grace that we're all called into and that we're to participate in and so to be part of. There's, that's a great image for Baraka as we go into this year. That, that what will it mean for us to see ourselves more fully, fully involved, living together in this parade of grace? That's the image. So we'll see that in the text. And so one image to parade, three words now. First word is captured. Second word, captivated. Third word, commission. So back to verse 7, we see our first word, captured. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and this is where he's quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So as you said earlier, Psalm 68, it's this picture of triumph. God is marching in triumph before all Israel after the exodus. He's leading His people from Egypt to the promised land. And so verse 8, when he, in Psalm 68, you can turn there if you want, but verse 8, when He comes to Sinai, the earth quakes under His feet. Verse 11 to 14, the, these kings and, and armies are described as fleeing before Him as His people sleep peacefully. Then in verse 16-17, to from, from Mount Sinai, He sets His sights on Mount Zion. And, and the text says that He moves with tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of chariots up those slopes of Jerusalem to victory. And He's leading these captives in His train and receiving gifts from men. Receiving gifts from men, even rebels. And so that's, that's the picture, and what a picture it is. And so it's this great song that David wrote with this image of parades in mind. Now, mind you, very different from what we are talking about earlier about parade. There were no trombones or Tootsie Rolls being thrown out at people or anything like that. This is very different than what we open with. In David's time, and even in Paul's day, a parade was more like this. This is, this is the image behind Psalm 68 and behind what Paul's image here in, in, in Ephesians 4. It would be this barbaric king coming in, conquering a people, and then celebrating with this enormous parade, sparing no expense to flaunt his victory, to flaunt his now newfound wealth. The king the, or the general, they would, again, spare no expense showing off that he now owns everything and he rules everyone. And part of that procession, that parade, would be these conquered citizens in chains being led through the city in humiliation and in open shame. They've just been defeated. One writer describes how this looked in Paul's day uh, when after a Roman conquest of an area. And so think about this image in that first word, captured. Paul's going to turn this image on its head in just a moment. But, but, but as Paul wrote, in light of David's day, here's what Paul would have been familiar with in Rome. Just listen to this description. 
Some ancient and modern sources suggest a fairly standard processional order. First came the captive leaders, allies, and soldiers, and sometimes their families, usually walking in chains. Some were destined for execution or further display. Their captured weapons, armor, gold, silver, statuary, and curious or exotic treasures were carted behind them along with paintings and tableaus and models depicting significant places and episodes of the war. Next in line, all on foot, came Rome's senators and magistrates, followed by the general's bodyguards in their red war robes, their, re their weapons wreathed in laurel. Then the general in his four-horse chariot, a companion or a public slave might share the chariot with him, or in some cases, his youngest children. His officers and elders rode horseback nearby. His unarmed, soldier, unarmed soldiers followed in togas and laurel crowns, chanting, We won! We won! And singing songs of victory. Somewhere in the procession, two flawless white oxen were led for the sacrifice to Jupiter, garland-decked and with gilded horns. All this was done to the accompaniment of music, clouds of incense, and the strewing of flowers. That's the image. And Paul, Paul takes this image, which in many ways is this somewhat offensive scene, and he turns it on its head and, and to describe an entirely different kind of parade. And so you look back at verse 7. To, to, to belong to King Jesus was far different than being captured by any other general. As it says, but grace was given to each one of us. Not shame, not humiliation, grace. We who were rebels, we received grace. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 8, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. So here's what I want you to see with this first word. We, we are a captured people. We are a captured people. A synonym for this kind of capture would be redeemed or rescued. In fact, in Paul's letter to the believers in Colossae, this is how he puts it. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've been captured in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So being captured by Christ in this sense is this glorious, wonderful reality. Together as a church, we can say, we can sing, we can shout together. Hallelujah! We have been captured by Christ. And notice, rather than thinking primarily about what we now give as a captured people to our captor, as it were, what the, what, what the conqueror receives from us, which is what Psalm 68 is saying. Did you notice what Paul says? He changes, receives, and he says gives. He said that he, Jesus the King, he gave gifts to men, even rebels. Talk about a radical reorientation here. He's unlike any other king, any other general. When he throws a parade, it's, it's something worth shouting about. It's something that we're to be glad that we're not just on the sidelines observing, but, but we're actually in this parade. We're recipients of these gracious gifts. So we, we deserve to be trampled. We deserve to be crushed. We deserve to be in chains. We deserve to, to be led to execution for our sin. We were in bondage to all kinds of enslavements. 
But we've been set free and given grace. That's how we've been captured. We didn't, listen, we didn't just not deserve His kindness. We did deserve His curse, His wrath. We weren't just undeserving, we were ill-deserving. But we've been captured. Captured by grace. Second word, captivated. And when you think about being captivated by something, what comes to mind? What's a synonym maybe we could use for captivated? Enchanted. Okay, good. Enthralled. Okay, that's good. So that, that kind of the astonished, impressed, uh, in awe. I mean, think of some place you've traveled before, pre-COVID probably, or you know, you... You, you drove a long way or you flew, flew some way. But, but this place, it just took your breath away. It took your breath away. And, and now you're trying to save up your airline miles so you can go back there uh, at some point. But when you, when you, when you see, if you've been to the Grand Canyon and you step up to that, that edge for the first time or you've been to Alaska and seen glaciers and all of that or Swiss Alps or the Great Barrier Reef or I don't know, wherever, wherever you've gone, uh, you, you're captivated. I was texting with Caleb yesterday with this, about his newborn girl, and he was just going on and on and on. He's captivated by this little child, this newborn child, and he's sending me pictures, and it's so precious. He's captivated. We who've been captured by Christ and put into this parade of grace, we are to be absolutely captivated by the wonder of it all. And that's what and Paul was. That's what verse 9 and 10 are all about. This is, he just launches into this and saying, he's not just giving some theological justification for what he's written in eight. He's just, I think he's, he's just expressing, extolling God and saying that he, Jesus, ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now that might sound terribly confusing to you. Even if you've been studying the Bible for a while, even if you walked through Ephesians before, it's not intended to be that. This, in fact, if this is something Paul's been talking about already throughout Ephesians, particularly in chapters one to three. In the first three chapters, this is he's describing what happened when God sent Jesus into the world. This incredible picture of this parade of grace, this building that's building on Psalm sixty-eight, this descent and. Ascent language here. This all describes what Jesus did. This is this was what his life, what his mission was all about. So Jesus descended into this world in the first advent, in his incarnation. This is what we've been celebrating over Christmas together just weeks ago. The second person of the eternal Godhead, one with God, came into this world, lowered himself. Philippians 2 6 and 7, Paul puts it this way, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This beautiful paradox. The incredible gift of the king of the universe who made everything, who sustains everything and holds the world together. He got so low, so small that he became a baby. And he came into this world, low, small, for us. But he did more than simply descend from heaven to earth, as incredible of a condescension that would be. Paul goes on in verse 8 of Philippians 2 to say, And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He descended so low that he actually took the cross as the sign of his kingdom. And so he came into this world, took on flesh, lived in our place a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment that we deserve. His descent was spatial from heaven to earth, but it was, it was so much more. It was grace-defining. I mean, this is how John talks in 1 John 4.10. This is, if you want to know what love is, this is it. God sent His Son to make propitiation for our sins on the cross. That's love. And so He loved us so much, He became sin for us. So, the, so then when Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about Jesus ascending, this is the victory, the enthronement. He's describing two things that Jesus did. First, He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He was raised for our justification, Paul says. When He rose on the third day as He promised He would be, it was as if God the Father was saying, everything My Son just accomplished by His death, it's enough. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. And in the resurrection, the Father says, Amen. It's done. But that's not all. He also ascended back to heaven. And so what Paul is doing, both using Psalm 68 and that background in his own world of, of where, where people were afraid, living under, uh, under the tyranny of bad politics and bad governments. And he's saying here, if you know Jesus, the sacrifice, it's not at the end of the parade. It's start of the parade. He, he descended that he might ascend and give gifts to men. So if you remember back a moment ago in the Roman world, there would be the two oxen that were led as part of the procession at the end of the conquering general's parade and they would be offered as sacrifice to Jupiter or some pagan god. Here's what's so unique about what it means to be the church. At the front, at the front of the parade is the one who actually sacrificed himself for us. Jesus is the one who laid down His life and now through the resurrection and, and through the ascension, we are being captivated by this astonishing news. We can trust, we can find refuge in the King of the world who has all authority through His resurrection and ascension now. And He is the one who's called us into this body, made us His bride, ascended, descended, or descended and ascended to give us gifts so we're captured. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We're set free, brothers and sisters. Hallelujah. And, and we're captivated. We see this king, this general, who lived and died in our place. He descended to the depths, even to the point of death on the cross for us, that he might raise and ascend to the Father. It's not the image of us now giving him something, but it's the image that he has given everything for us captivated and then finally third word commissioned in the few moments we have left what are the good gifts our king gives us and how does that connect with baraka and this coming year this important season in our life together as a church how does it relate and again just some cream off the top here how can we live not as spectators of the parade of grace but as every single one of us actively participating in the parade of grace that we've been called to. So first, Paul mentions in verse 11 that this exalted king, he gave gifts to men. 
Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He Part of the gift the gifts Jesus gives are, are these, these people, these leaders. And we know the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20, he's made that clear earlier in this book. They, they've passed off the scene, but their gift to the church still lingers. This is what we have in the New Testament. It's this legacy of the apostolic teaching and, and this prophetic word. And so evangelists, pastors, teachers, these are word people that the Lord has given to the church today. Now we could spend a lot of time just talking about these particular gifts and these offices. That's not what we're going to do this morning. Why though? This is what I want to find. Why does the Lord Jesus give, give these leaders to the church? He gives these gifts to men and women who are called to serve in these various capacities, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, there's so much that could be said about that. I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I would just say, if Baraka is going to fulfill, fulfill her calling to live as captured, rescued, captivated, commissioned people, as we all say, we're a parade of grace. We're in a parade of grace and not just to watch it, but we're in it to participate. We're commissioned. This is the Lord has given us these gifts. Not just showing up on Sundays and thinking, are they going to sing songs that I like today? You know, or bringing our scorecards in and, you know, evaluating and judging the, the preaching and judging the scripture reader and judging the, the songs and judging the way people dress and judging this and that. We got to drop the scorecards when we walk in. We're, we take up a basin, we take up a towel ready to wash one another's feet. We, this, this is how we come in. It's not, I'm so glad that we have seven pastors, seven elders to do these things. It's no, we, we are, we're called, we're to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So back to verse 6 where this all starts. Grace was given to each, or verse 7, grace was given to each one of us. Each one of us. We all have been given grace, grace for salvation, but what he's talking about is grace for service. These gifts and different measures. Can't say, you know, I, hey, I, I can't do much. I don't, I don't really think I'm gifted to serve in, the, in any ways. I can't organize events and plan, you know, programs and build buildings and, you know, retaining walls or, or <laughs> teach classes or those kinds of things. No, what equips you to be a member of this church, of this parade, it's grace. And you've received it. You have received it, each one of you, if you are in Christ, if you've received saving grace, you've received this grace to serve. Every single one of us has been gifted, has been given by the resurrected and ascended Christ, grace to know him, grace to groan, to become more like him and grace to serve his body in this wonderful community around us with with what he's with the gifts he's given you. His work of ministry, it's broad in meaning. I mean, any ways that we serve the body and help it grow are in mind here. Making meals, making phone calls, writing notes, praying with one another, praying for one another, reading the Bible together with other believers, seeing, serving in various ministries within the church in visible ways or in unseen ways, greeting guests when they come, giving to the progress of the gospel, evangelism, communicating with missionaries, 
uh, stacking chairs with a cheerful heart after a members meeting, you know, visiting someone who's homebound, opening your home to a family for a meal, and it just goes on and on. The shape ministry and bodybuilding takes takes is endless, really. So I just children, you were here this morning. You, I know you draw pictures while I preach, and I think that's fantastic. And I love to, I get to see some of them occasionally. You'll give them to me. And I know you give them to your parents, and they, they don't have enough refrigerators in Fayette County to put all of the pictures you've probably drawn for your parents on there. Uh, and so one way you could serve, draw those pictures and, and, and ask your mom and dad for a stamp so you can send it to someone that's maybe shut in or not able to be here this Sunday. And it's just a way of a blessing and encouraging and thinking about you. Write a little note. Parents, you can help them with this. I mean, uh, just all of us, we have these ways in which in which we're to be serving. Now, I thank God for you, brothers and sisters, in your work of ministry. I was talking with our staff meeting earlier this week. I, I, I think that whole, you know, we've, we talk about the 80-20 rule. I don't know. They probably talk about this in all of life, but talking about in churches for years and years, I've heard this, you know, 80% of the people do 20% of the work, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I think that's bogus. I, I really do. I think that's just foolishness. If we're talking about the formal... Visible ways, maybe. But most of the work that happens in a church is not seen. It's not visible. It's not, you know, some program or some person standing up front teaching or some organization of a big event. Most of what happens is very, very quiet. And it's hidden. And, and I thank God that you are involved and you've been equipped for work, the work of ministry and you've been released and blessed and liberated to just do that. And, and, and I pray that we'll continue on in that. That's, that's what we need without fanfare, without, without the, you know, that recognition. I thank God for the variety of gifts and the different people that we have in this congregation, the way he's, he's made us. Some of you are more sympathetic than others. Um, some are more patient. Some are more enduring through difficulties. And you have that kind of grit. Some are more adventurous and courageous and daring and ready to try new things. And others are not. Some are more creative. Some are more humorous. Some are more disciplined. Some are more flexible. Some are more gifted in ways of of showing care and concern for people that tend to be marginalized. Some are better suited for administrating and organizing and behind the scenes. Some are better in public ministry. Some are better in private ministries. But all are essential for the growth and the health and the ministry and the unity of the church. That's what Paul's saying. So, brothers and sisters, we, we've been captured. We've been made part of this parade of grace. And, and I pray we'll be captivated, astonished at the wonder that, of what Christ had done, has done to, to, to bring us into this parade and give gifts to us, not demand something from us. The, 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 the message this morning is not, here's all the things you need to now do for Jesus. That's, if, you, if you hear that, I, I am sorry and I have failed the message this morning is Jesus calls us to, 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 to give everything to labor with Him. We're not doing anything for Him. We're, we're laboring with Him. We're laying our lives down with Him. He is the hero. He is the champion. He is the, he's the one that's active. He's the one that's building His church. He's the one that's working from, from this point until now and will until He returns. And we're, we are not doing something, accomplishing something for Him without Him uh, we, in His absence, we are doing something with Him because He's present and He's working. 
That's, that's, that's what we want. And we want to throw ourselves into that, brothers and sisters, with, with, that this will be a place just full of gospel astonishment of what Christ has done to, to give us these gifts so that we might be one and we might be used by the Lord to draw others into this parade of grace. Welcome them in. This passage is not about us. It's not about our gifts. It's not about leaders and their roles in the church primarily. This is primarily about Jesus leading and loving His church. The incarnate, crucified, risen, victorious, ascended Christ is actively leading and serving His church in this parade of grace today. He's involved. He's actively involved in ongoing, present work in us, in His body. And as we come to the table this morning, we need to keep that in mind. We don't just remember Him by looking retrospectively at Him. That's not the sum of this remembrance. We are remembering His work, His body broken, His blood shed for us. We're remembering Him, yes, but we look, we look to Him now. He is presently leading His church. He's empowering His church. He's loving His church. He's growing His church. He's serving and blessing His church, this congregation. And he's doing it even through this table. He's near. He's with us. Let's remember that as we come. I'm going to ask the men to go ahead and come forward as, as I pray, and then we will, we will prepare to take the Lord's table together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you are alive you left the glories of heaven to be born as a baby, to be clothed in flesh, so that you might be tempted as we are and yet never sin. You, you lived a life of absolute, perfect obedience to the law, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and yet you willingly laid down your life to be punished as a lawbreaker in our place. Thank you that you, you who knew no sin, you became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in you. You suffered, you died in, in the place of unworthy, filthy sinners like us. But thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you live. You rose from the dead. You've, thank you that the tomb was empty. Thank you that you live and you, you reign and you are now even spiritually present with your church. And thank you that one day you're going to return and be physically present with us. Again, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Until you come, Lord, though, we wait and we worship and we grow and we witness and we serve and we sing and we remember. And so even as we come to the table, Lord, help our remembrance at this table to be fresh, to be infused with the sense of the meaning that's intended by the bread and the cup. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.